in this world is the destiny of mankind controlled by some transcendental entity or law? Is it like the hand of God hovering above? At least it is true that man has no control, even over his own podcast. I'm Jordy Bailey. Welcome to Is This Just Fantasy? And I'm the man who's learned not to follow charismatic leaders, Duncan Nickel. Now, there's one thing we can take away from both this book and the Dune series. It's that if you see a handsome man, and he seems that everything he tells you is going to come true, if if you just follow him, then it's time to then it's time to get off of uh, it's time to get off Twitter, buddy. It's time to to leave those influences behind. Welcome to the second book club of our spooky uh, month. I, we don't have a formal well, name for it. I hope that does. Yes, we do, Duncan. It's our spooky book month for the month of October, which we'll be doing every year. Welcome, everyone. And this week, we're looking at Berserk. Oh, God, I'm so excited. Duncan, this has literally been the most excited I am to talk about a book series as I have been since we started this podcast. Well, I'm very happy to have picked it for you. For those new to the book club, every fortnight, me and Georgie take turns picking a book to read. And on this forum, we discuss it. But it's not just our mm. opinions that matter. No, 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 no. You're free to reach out to us and tell us what you think of Berserk or any other of the books that we've read or haven't read. And you can reach out to us at our Gmail at ifthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com or yeah. on Instagram at ifthisjustfantasypodcast podcast now i've always been a fan of the fact that duncan has always said we want you to reach out if you have good opinions um and uh, that, that no there is no difference this week because a lot of you might say oh johnny berserk is not a book series it's a manga so it's more like a comic book and we reserve the right to read whatever comic books we like buddy i quite agree i i'm going down on the line that i bought this in bindings so it looked like a book. So it's a book. Yep, my deluxe editions look a hell of a lot bigger than most of the books on my bookshelf. Duncan, these things are intense. Very appropriately for the series. Each one is like almost a foot tall. And I could definitely kill a man with one. I think that is uh, very appropriate. And I'm sure there's a scene in the series where someone does kill a man with a book that size. It, there is! There is! <laughs> Jordy, for the people in our audience, and I don't expect there'll be that many of them who have not heard of Berserk, please, why don't you give a little intro? Berserk is the magnum opus of the late great Kentaro Miura, who in 1989 first released a an incredible manga called Berserk. It's a very grim, dark fantasy which follows the black swordsman, Guts. He's most famous for having an absolutely gigantic fuck-off sword and creating the very idea of having a ginormous fuck-off sword. Uh, Bleach, Final Fantasy, all those other anime, Black Clover, whatever, they all owe it to Berserk. It's a... That is a mighty statement. Uh, Yes. Are you you speaking that with confidence? You reckon Guts here is the origin of the giant, that Final Fantasy VII Buster Sword... Uh, absolutely absolutely there's no question in my mind it's um and you it's really really hard to understate how important the series berserk is to the world of fantasy i'm going to say in this episode with a great deal of confidence many times that it is the best work of fantasy ever written and and that it is enormously influential enormously 
Well, I'm just going to come out and say I don't fully agree with that statement, but that does not undermine how great this series is. Shall we have a little discussion about our different perspectives on Berserk and our different experiences with it? Absolutely. Um, do you mind if I start? Because I think my story will be a little bit quicker. Please do. Berserk is spoken about in sort of the manga space with such reverence, but it's also an anime. And that's how I actually first came across it. Mm. When I was kind of young, getting into anime for the first time, I did very sensible, I think, thing, I think. Um, I just typed in, like, top 10 anime into Google one day. And you can imagine, this is about 12 <laughs> years ago, so, about, you know, 2010. And I literally got a list of, like, Cowboy Bebop, Akira, mm-hmm. um, Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that list, mm. one of the options was Berserk. And already being kind of a fan of, like, like, when I say fantasy, I'm like medieval-looking fantasy, particularly at that age, uh, this was right up my street. So I rushed out to HMV, bought the DVD mm. box set, because I follow the law, people. Um, and I sat down and worked my way through it. And my only kind of takeaway from that first experience was, one, uh, the animation mm. was horrific. It, it, that's hard to deny. It's hard to deny. It was a different time, but also it was a really, really small budget. Exactly. I was thinking, because this came out in the same similar time to um, another great anime, I really like Trigun. And you can even tell then, it's like, this is cheap. Like, they've tried to do a lot here, mm. but they were not given a lot of resource. But the main takeaway, though, wasn't the fact that it looked bad, to be fair. The main takeaway was, the story was so good, I didn't care. It almost could have been like... Mm. Of course, could have been just like stationary panels and moved between them, <laughs> and I still would have found it amazing. Um, what I didn't know is when it was stationary panels with a lot more detail on them, it became more amazing. And I didn't read mm. the manga until this very year after Jordy's many recommendations. And uh, those who've been following the book club and coming regularly will know that I sort of periodically throughout the year said things like, Oh, I've just read an extra chapter, or oh, I picked up this volume. Um, so this is very much the combination mm. of like the last eight months for me. I've read all of the Berserk yep. just once. Sorry, not all of Berserk. I'm making assumptions there. I've read all of the Golden Age arc once through, which is what we'll be discussing today. The first two arcs in the manga. Um, also, I think it's worth noting, I read this on Kindle. Mm. I don't know if that affected my experience, but what it means is um, it was one page only. And whenever there was a two-page spread, which there are some amazing ones in here, I had to do this weird, like, half yep. swipe. Um, or I had to, like, go out, click some buttons, and then look at it, side view, and then click some buttons and go back. Yeah. Um, no fan of Berserk can actually critique you for that, Duncan, because 80% of Berserk fans have not purchased uh, Berserk. They have pirated it online. So the, the fact that you've watched it, maybe you've read it, maybe you're not the best medium, it means fuck all. I'm glad, because I'm not going to lie, this is not the, um, like with a lot of manga, this is not the cheapest thing to dive into. Um, particularly, I find, even compared to a lot of like Western comics, the price mm. per minute spent reading um, is quite steep. I think it's kind of hard to draw a comparison sometimes, because Berserk, because it's been so long running, do you I compare Berserk mm-hmm. to the style of comics when it first came out, or the style of comics today? Well, I will tell you that, Duncan, and the thing, the wonderful thing about Berserk is that it transcended the comics of its era. 
that it that it began in the Black Swordsman arc as essentially a you know a sort of money making scheme like oh this is super popular right now the number one manga in the world well in the world in Japan is Fist of the North Star so I'm gonna make my own Fist of the North Star said University Age Kentaro Miura and then the guy who ran Fist of the North Star the most successful um the most successful comic book in all of Japan said you you're a really good artist Kentaro Miura I want you to become one of my assistants. It'll be a a really great gateway to the top. And Kentaro Miura was given the opportunity of a lifetime. And he said, no, thank you. I'm going to go my own way. And I'll ask you, Duncan, if that reminds you of anything within the text of, of Berserk. That at the point when the Black Swordsman arc is coming to an end, Kentaro Miura decides to follow his own path and it completely changes his manga. He completely changes and starts writing the Golden Age instead. Knowing that that syncs up with what was happening externally makes so much sense. Because for some reading it, that was the point mm. where it shifted gears into... It's not like I didn't enjoy that first arc, and we'll get into that more later. But mm-hmm. up to that point, I was like, yep. oh yeah, 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 this is fun. I see why people recommended it. To, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this really is one of the best things I've read. Mm, mm. I will now speak to my experience of Berserk. The year is 2014. I'm on YouTube. A new video pops up from a channel I sometimes check out. And that channel is Death Battle. It's a, it used to be Screw Attack, but then Death Battle got way too popular and Screw Attack got way less popular. So now they just make videos about taking fictional characters and making them fight each other. And for two characters I have never heard of before, Nightmare from Soul Calibur and Guts from Berserk. And I go, eh, why not? And I go to watch the video and they spend the first half of the video just talking about how fucking cool Guts is. And I go, well, I'll be. Maybe, maybe I should look into this. And so I did. I was 16 years old. I read Berserk like I had discovered the Holy Grail and... And I caught up to the manga as it was back then, right after. I can tell you, I can tell you exactly what manga it is, uh, what manga chapter it is. Fans of Berserk is the chapter where Guts finally gets off the boat and then fights a ginormous wicker man. But Geordie, who won the death battle? Was it Guts or Nightmare? <laughs> Do you even have to ask? I really don't. That's, a, that's literally too, they've gone, who else has a big sword? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. They even said, we gotta put Guts in, in one of his death battles. Who can he take down? Oh, I love that old content. I, I was a big fan of Screw Attack when they, uh, when they first started out. Speaking of long-running series, um, Berserk ran from 1989 until uh, 20... Was it 2020 or 2021? Uh, so it's, it's over then. No more Berserk. Berserk is finished. Story complete. Conclusion in place. Well, about that. So, unfortunately for the world, Kentaro Miura passed away um, in 2021, which was genuinely, actually brokenhearted. Like, I full-on cried about that many times. It was very emotional. Not only because uh, a really great artist lost his life at quite an early age, in at 56. Uh, not only that, but also because... 
that there was an outpouring across the world of how much Berserk meant to so many people, how much influence it had. You know, there's no Dark Souls without Berserk. So much of Final Fantasy and the modern manga industry doesn't exist without it. He was connected to, um, to George Morikawa, the creator of Hajime no Ippo. It's, um, it really is, um, it really, it was a shocking loss. And for a whole year, um, the future of Berserk was really uncertain, because mangas have been concluded after their author's deaths in the past. And he had a full team behind him, but no one could replace Miura's genius, his, his, his craft and his art. And then finally, a successor was named, and it was Mori Koji. And Mori Koji is someone I'm actually a big fan of. He's nowhere near as successful as Kentaro Miura. He hasn't shaken the ground beneath the industry's feet. But he is Kentaro Miura's best friend. Oh, yeah. And um, he's also a pretty good mangaka himself. He created Holy Land, which a lot of people like. It's a really good martial arts manga. He created uh, one called Suicide Island, which is pretty good. I enjoy it a lot. And, um, yeah, his latest one is just actually really enjoyable. It's called, um, Sose no Tiger, or Tiger of Genesis, which is about a bunch of anthropology students going back to the Stone Age, accidentally getting sent back in time. And literally in the last four chapters, uh, he's revealed that they're not the only time travelers, uh, but the other time travelers were Nazis, Nazi soldiers who accidentally went back in time during World War II, and are now siding with Neanderthals to try and create an exclusively white human race, and they have to fight the Nazis in the Stone Age? I mean, for the world of uh, manga, that's part of the course, isn't it? The more, yeah, uh, we'll see. It's a little out there, I'll give him that. It's really interesting that you talk about the idea of, um, obviously, another author carrying on a deceased author's work. I think a very famous example of this is when Brandon Sanderson took over from Robert Jordan to finish World of Time. And I I don't know sure. how we're gonna how things will turn out with Berserk, but if it's anything like that incident, I think the general vibe often goes is I'm happy it got an ending. Um, this author is good, but obviously it's not the same. Yes, and um, some people are very critical of Maury's particular patch. I'm not. I think there was some literally a couple of rough illustrations, but on the whole, it's very strong. But we'll get to that in a couple of years, when we get around to the current stage of Berserk. Instead, we're talking about its not-so-humble beginnings. Shall we talk about the Black Swordsman arc? So, the Black Swordsman arc, this is included in sort of the first three volumes, if you're going off the little white books. Um, and I believe the first uh, hardback omnibus just covers the Black Swordsman arc, if I'm not mistaken. So what is this arc? This arc picks up um, after the second arc. We're sort of, right. I would say mid-adventure. It definitely, you get, it kind of leaves a lot of blanks. Uh, we follow Guts. He is the title of Black Swordsman. And he's kind of just roaming the land, going horrific monster to horrific monster and killing it. Um, he gets a humorous psychic in the form of the elfin figure Puck. And I think what this arc basically tells us, or at least what mm -hmm. I took away from it, is Guts is a badass when it comes to fighting. Yep. That Guts clearly has a horrific amount of trauma under the surface. Indeed. Um, displayed when he he really... It's not like he doesn't... How do I put it? 
he's not playing kind of dark and mysterious like when it comes to like social interactions mm-hmm. he's genuinely acts like aggressive and i think yeah the he's artwork very beautifully but i always feel like the artwork kind of shows in his like kind of anger like there's a level of like fear like do not uh common one is when he shouts at puck like do not touch me yeah and you're like okay it's something very has happened to this man yeah and it's something that really needs to be encountered upon right from the start about how different berserk is immediately from its contemporaries i told you already that it's sort of Kentaro Miura's a chance to get on in the success of Fist of the North Star. And there are other equivalent series are out of the time which haven't exactly um, become as notable. But the fact that Guts in these scenes is this, um, he's outwardly very stoic. He's very cool, he's very badass, he's very aggressive, and he's driven by rage. This is all pretty standard stuff for the dark fantasy hero protagonist of the time. What is not common is someone having an anxiety attack because someone touched them. That is something which you'd be surprised to see even in a modern dark fantasy. And if you did, you'd say, that was inspired by Berserk. (laughs) The fact that Guts is already, despite the fact he's in his edgiest period of the entire Mangaran, he's on a complete psychic brink. I think what's kind of worked so nicely about talking about he's on like this the edge mm-hmm. is that the things that you would think would horrify the average person are what he takes blase and it's the normal stuff, the almost the nice comforts mm-hmm. that seem to really shake him. Like when he goes toe to toe with any of the monsters, he never really shows fear. Mm. He either I think he, it's only in the fight scenes where we even get him, like, kind of seem to be enjoying himself. Oh yeah, he takes absolute sadistic glee in fighting ginormous, horrifying monsters. And then, at most, he gets, and I was about to say he gets angry, but especially in the very first chapter. I wouldn't say gets angry is, is fair. I think it's just more of a constant state of being. Well, that's the thing though, because I almost, I, I kind of read it though, is that you talk about anger, like rage, mm-hmm. but he also seems to just kind of get kind of annoyed <laughs> when some of the monsters like start taunting him or doing something sadistic or like the fight like is getting dragged out. He's like he kind of just gets this almost such annoyance, like oh my god, why aren't you dead yet? Yeah, that's like, true. You're Gunn not. Says that a lot. You're not the big boss. Just die. Mm-hmm. I'm moving on. Uh, and just playing off that, I love that like all the monsters in this arc don't seem to realize that they're not the big bad. Mm. Well, well, we'll talk about the last big bad in this in the uh, in the first arc because that's a guy who realizes pretty quick that he's small potatoes, the slug lord. My um, I I said earlier that um, that Kentaro had already deviated from um from the mold of of uh, of guts as a as a dark fantasy hero but in some ways it's very very obvious that that Miura didn't have a plan and that's been something he's been quite candid about he didn't know where the series was going to go he didn't even know that it was going to become one of the greatest works of fantasy literature because he hadn't come up with those ideas yet guts as a character was very much in his infancy as it comes to conceptualization in fact Page one of the series is a plot hole. Um, you might have to point this out to me because I was I read page one a couple of months back. The opening panel 
for all of Berserk is Guts having sex with a woman who transforms into a demon and then he detaches his his very, very cool prosthetic cannon hand and explodes her. Oh, well, that doesn't line up with his characterization for not wanting to be touched. It sure doesn't. There sure is a lot of touching happening there. It sure is a lot of guts. The cold, cruel badass doesn't like people touching him and also has only loved one woman in his entire life. No, that's, that opening scene is so over-the-top and edgy, and it, it, it's not reflective of, um, of Berserk, to the point that if you were, like, sharing Berserk to a friend, you almost might want to just, like, fold over the first couple of pages and just hand someone a book and just be like, don't, don't go back a couple of pages. It doesn't make sense. Just keep going. Do you know what? I actually want to just follow up on that line, because I wanted to make this comparison. I think now's the time to address it now. Um, but the artwork in Berserk is great. So this is 89, 88. Um, there's another black and white comic that I've read a lot of that came out in this era called Savage Sword of Conan. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of. Okay. And I really just want to emphasise, like, that I would almost consider kind of in the same ballpark. It was a, a Western comic coming out from Marvel, but it's black and white. It's meant to be kind of the more gritty, gory one. And... Yeah, it's a dark fantasy, but the artwork in that coming out of like Marvel, come on guys, we've got a monthly schedule, and those artists are good. John Buscema is a great artist, uh-huh. but just comparing like the panel detail between that and what you see in Berserk, it's yep. night and day. You really just get the feeling that when you read uh, one of those other comics, it's like the notes came through to the artist from the guy writing the script. It's like, uh, he he swings his sword and then you look at it and it's just like, yeah, that is definitely the figure and he, that he's done that. And sometimes you look at these panels and uh-huh. you look behind them and the backgrounds are always like, what's well, the minimum amount I can get away with? Because I'm on a timer and I've got like four other books to draw. The art in The Black Swordsman, which is definitely the worst the art is in the entirety of Berserk, is still better than like 90% of all manga ever. There are some real standouts, like if you go to modern teams who can create weekly mangas which look amazing, you know, I'm talking about like um, Horikoshi, the guy who creates My Hero Academia. He has an amazing sense of motion and, and line work. Um, that's a guy with a big, big team and modern tools. Kentaro Miro is drawing this incredible stuff, these incredibly... These, these fantastic images with an incredible sense of motion where you could feel the enormous weight of Guts swinging this huge sword and the terrible impact of him smashing someone apart with it. Where you could do these big two-page spreads of Guts leaping into motion surrounded by skeletons and not only draw all the detail on the skeletons themselves but the woods in the background. It defies belief. This guy was like in university I think at the time. The sword swing is one of those elements that. So the sword swings in the backgrounds are the key things. Is that I feel that firstly in Berserk, you can always look into the background, and there's always way more detail than you feel like there should be. And secondly, mm. the sword swings are such a good example of this art being amazing, compared to the sort of the contemporaries that I have uh-huh. read from the time. And when I say I mean like Western comics, because the sword swings. It never just mm. goes to that classic, the sword is basically not coloured in, 
very popular one when it's in motion. And what they often do, uh-huh. it's like two lines uh-huh. that show you sort of the movement of the sword. And the person getting hit sometimes just has a little white section. Or most, it's like a thin black line. Yeah. And they might do a little bit of edging for their like clothes. A little bog. This, when someone gets hit with the sword, you like see their entire anatomy. <laughs> You see their intestines, baby. They're all trailing all over the page. It just gives us such a sense of, um, I don't want to say place, kineticism. It's kinetic. For me, yeah, kinetic, that kind of, that physicality. I feel like, despite I'm looking at this, like, 2D drawing, that these are, like, objects I can kind of, if I say reach out and Mm -hmm. touch, you just get my hands into the intestines. But that's the feeling, like, I'm not looking at, um, oh, how do I put it? It's like Mm. in a video game. You know the fact that, like, when I was younger, I used to do this, like, you have this idea that, oh, 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 there's definitely more there, sure. I just can't get to it, when in reality it's just mm-hmm. a couple of, like, polygons. This gives me the feeling that, like, do you ever play, like, Mortal Kombat, the, I don't know, the 09, the more recent ones uh, that came out, and one of the great... No. <laughs> I've never played Mortal Kombat, I've just played Injustice. Okay, fair enough. Um... There's such a thing that's called x-ray moves where you kind of, it zooms in and you see that you've like hit like their intestines or their ribs and it gives you the sense that it isn't just a a set of polygons that if you move the camera inside they'd be empty. They actually Mm -hmm. have all the internals there. This, this does this to the drawings because when they get cut up you see everything. It gives you the feeling that like these people have Mm. meat and bones and when he ever, he never seems to stretch the human anatomy. I know that's quite a basic thing in artwork. But it's one that I often find, particularly in a lot of mm-hmm. Marvel, that I love. Uh, kind of, if they can accentuate a, a moment or a feeling by stretching the anatomy a bit, yep. they they will. I don't think that ever really happens in Berserk. People always look proportionally. I think that's basically true. The one difference to that is the character of Zod, who does change size a couple of times, but that's been done very deliberately. But yes, Berserk ruined all other comic books for me. And especially um, Western comic books. I've told Duncan many times that I struggle a lot with things like superhero comics because I think the action is absolutely crap. Um, Because I've been spoiled by Berserk. Because I've seen the master of his craft create like 300 chapters of amazing action where you can feel, you can tell exactly how people move in between in between the moves, you can see in one panel that Guts is raising his sword, and the next one, he has decided not to swing it, but has to duck underneath the blow of a terrible monster. And then in the next panel, he turns and spins. And you can feel the step each time. There. A. B. C. And then I read, like, Western comic books, and it's two characters standing next to each other, either like ready to punch each other or their swords are pushed together and they have a long long dialogue in between them and it's crap it's boring and there's no sense of movement or flow or excitement uh i really like the fact that you count out the sets i think that's a really common one i found in western comics where the characters sometimes they just have so much Mm -hmm. time elapses between panels that it's like okay they're there Mm -hmm. surrounded by like four guys and then the next panel, it's like, and exactly. they're up the stairs and along the corridor, exactly. and they swipe down another guy. Um, so, no, that's a great comment. I think, oh, I want to bring this up now, because um, I had this thought ages ago. I think I sent you a message about it, and I think I may have misled you to give every reaction, where <sighs> I said, oh my god, Berserk 
is like Avatar The Last Airbender. Okay, I don't remember this message. <laughs> Go on. Is it because it's good? It's, no, because it's good. It's good. And it ruined all its contemporaries by being too good. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, I, I got the same feeling, weirdly, reading Berserk as I did watch when I first ever watched Avatar, mm-hmm. uh, The Last Airbender. I just went, oh, oh, everything else is crap. <laughs> oh, no. So, Berserk, The Black Swordsman arc, what's it actually about? And because we've talked a lot about what makes uh, Miura a strong artist, but we should talk about this arc and what we stand to gain by moving on to the next arc, to the Golden Age. As Duncan said, this is on medias res. We start off and we pick up in the middle of Guts' life. The inciting incident, basically, is Guts meeting Puck, a little fairy who has two things which are very important to Guts. The first of which is that he secretes magical healing powder, which makes Guts able to keep getting back up. And the other one is that he can sense emotions. And when he's near Guts, we don't just get an overwhelming sense of rage, although it is very, very present. By the way, if you're someone who has not read Berserk before and you're listening to this because you're just going through our podcast, first of all, if you, if you can tolerate some some grisly stuff, you owe it to yourself to read Berserk. And second of all, if you've ever seen that meme where it goes, man too angry to die, that is almost always accompanied by a picture of Guts from Berserk. So, there we go. But he doesn't just sense rage from Guts, he senses this overwhelming, deep sadness. And that begins this mystery. This question of, after Guts has gone around slaying these monsters, these apostles as they're called, he fights the Slug Lord, a man who fell from grace, was corrupted by evil magics, and then gave his soul up to become a demon. In this world, basically all demons are people who succumbed. Duncan, would you like to talk about, because you've mentioned them in our previous episode on Monster Tearlists, a very good episode everyone should check out, you mentioned the primary antagonists of Berserk, and they make their first appearance in this first arc. What do you think of them? That they do. So, we were talking about the God Hand. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that if you watch the uh, 97, I believe, anime, yeah, this scene isn't in it. Nope. Only one scene from the, the the Black Swordsman arc, that being Guts fighting the Snake Lord or whatever, um, is in the 97, right? And then they immediately move on to telling the story in chronological order. Uh, not even that, actually. It's, it's a little bit more complex. I'll get into it more. Actually, I'll get into it now. Why not? Oh, that's a fun of book club. Ah. Um, they do, yeah, so they only... I've never seen the 97 anime, by the way. They adapt the first chapter. I thought I should put that out there. Uh, with the snake, I'm going to call him Duke, but no, Count, we'll go Count. Um, and then it literally he just cuts count. to Guts sitting later, and then his, he has a brand mark given to him by the demons that uh, marks him out for yeah. evil sacrifice. Um, and then we literally just mm-hmm. get a cut of, like, the, the villain Femto, and then Guts just kind of goes... Uh, Griffith, 
And then <laughs> and then we, we go straight into, not the chronologically, we actually go into his first encounter with the band of the Hawk. And then we actually get his childhood. And it's done yes, as a flashback right. a little later. And I remember, I have actually seen that scene. It's an interesting, and other than that though, it's, I just want to say, it's very loyal until the very end of the Golden Age, where basically they just go, oh, we do not have the time or money for this. And they start cutting a lot of stuff out. Uh, but talking about the God Hand, they're introduced to the scene. These are the, I'm going to call them the puppet masters of this universe. They seem to be behind everything. At the same time, they don't physically do a lot. It's all about them standing back, looking powerful, and being like, it is all going to plan. Oh, look, the little man has arrived. Mm. How interesting. And it definitely feels like whatever grand scheme's going on, again, I've only finished the God of Art. Um, we, the reader, have no idea. And it's very, very open to how powerful they actually are and how much influence. And I definitely got the reading from this that these are just... Mm-hmm. They may seem to know everything that's going on, but they don't necessarily have control over everything. Um, and when they're dealing with a lot of humans, it's like they offer humans this power by like selling something out you know, to their souls. They often have to make a sacrifice, a very close sacrifice, quite often a family member. Almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it is exclusive. I'm sure I'll find out. Or someone who's practically family. Uh, but they're always like, yeah, we only make the offer when we're like 99.99% sure they're going to succumb. Like, no one's ever... They wouldn't even say that. They say 100%. Oh, I'm sure they would. Like, they are certain. They always know. But what I find very interesting in this scene at the end of Black Swordsman is how just absolutely little we're told about any of them. Um, they're just they're standing yeah. there. We get that this guy, Griffith, who looks like a big... I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. He reminds me so much of uh, the costume in Birdman. But obviously the Birdman came later. That's that's mm-hmm. all I could see. Uh, but still. Well, he was kind of based around the Batman 89 look. And those are both inspired. Both the Birdman costume and this came from the Batman 89 costume. So that, that makes sense. That's a good comparison. I, I'm glad. Because um, I was... When I, when I first read it, I was like... I know that's meant to be intimidating, but it's not quite coming across. Um, but still. You know who is intimidating? The guy standing next to him. You want to describe the character of Void? No, I don't. I'll describe the character of Void because you don't know which one Void I is. I don't know which one Void is. Void the um, Hellraiser-looking bloke. He is the Hellraiser-looking bloke. The one with eyes that look like they're sort of... Either they're shut or they're turned inside out. I'm not sure. They are stitched shut. Oh, delightful. And his lips have been removed, and they've been um, pinned back around, so they're like stretched out over his exposed teeth. The crown of his head is um, is is a brain. He has no skull; it's just there. Um, he's very tall. He has a cape, and um, he has six fingers on each of his hands. I've never noticed that. But do you think? And he talks like this. Destiny is in the palm of our hands. I'm gonna like digitally make my voice deeper. Destiny's in the palm and there is no free will. <coughs> it's exactly like that, and then he has to break out into coughs because he realizes how impractical his uh, look is. Do you feel like okay? Let's say let's assume I, mean, I don't know. Void was once human. Did he take on that form like after he took the like 
made the sacrifice. He's like, excellent. And now I have all the power in the world. Did he then decide to do that afterwards? Did someone do that to him? Was it magically done? I'm going to abstain from answering this question. Uh, My only issue with the God Hand, and I will throw this up, is I think two of them look like fat men. I think there should have been a slightly different design on them. In fact, I get them confused. You know what, you're right. People get confused as guys all the time. Uh, There's one with, like, glasses and one who looks like he's always pucking up to, like, have a kiss or do, like, a fish face. Um, And I think they look too similar. I think that guy's Conrad. All of the, um, all of the God Hand are named after sci-fi novels. Void. What's the, uh... Slan, Conrad, Void, and the other guy. And the other guy. I've read this manga five times. I do not remember his name. It's a good kind of set. It's a mystery box, I think. I think it establishes, uh... Yeah, because Mikura didn't know who these guys were. who these guys are. He had no idea who these guys were. To be honest... He just knew that Femto used to be called Griffith. And I think that's what the Black Swordsman arc does quite nicely. It, it does take you through these kind of similar action beats, but it lays enough... Mm-hmm. I'm going to call the mystery boxes. You're like, what? what is this uh, sad past for our lead character? Who are these mm-hmm. villains? Why do they want to kill them? Yep. You get a lot of questions, and I think that works fine, because I feel like going forward we one answer them at a reasonable pace or at the very least we get so caught up in mm-hmm. what matters to guts that when the questions don't matter to guts like guts mm-hmm. doesn't seem to care about these guys origins uh, he cares about beating them so and once nope. you you find yourself so strongly on guts sides or at least so you i found myself so strongly on guts sides like mm-hmm. i don't know i've never known i, I might never know the answer to some of those questions i should have posed and i've not known since i watched the anime Indeed. 10 years ago but I don't, I don't care. Mm. I just want to see Guts win. So speaking as someone who has watched the 97 anime yeah. and someone who's read Berserk through the Golden Age for the first time, do you believe uh, or agree with a certain subset of the fandom that you can skip the Black Swordsman arc? Um, n- no. Why would you do that? That doesn't work. Because right. the swordsman are... It's just less berserk. You're just doing yourself a disservice right there. Um, I definitely think if you were watching the anime, you could skip mm-hmm. episode one. And I would also always say to someone, if you weren't jiving with it, if you didn't enjoy the Black Swordsman, do try and go a bit further. That would be my recommendation. I wouldn't say skip it because it's important to... It matters when reading The Golden Age, basically... If you didn't know Black Swordsman and you went straight into the Golden Age, I think the ending of Golden Age would come a little bit too out of left field and might be unsatisfactory. Whereas knowing Black Swordsman, it means that you read all of Golden Age with an appropriate sort of mm-hmm. cloud of dread over all the happenings. Yeah, and that's needed. I've always wondered, what if you didn't know that everything was going to go wrong? Like, I read in the appropriate order, and I have been told in that, that YouTube video about Guts, like, how he was betrayed, and what that did to him and shit. And, um, so I know throughout the entire manga what's going to happen, but I gotta know, like, what would it be like to have no idea, to not know that Griffith is a traitor? Like, would it be more impactful to be feel betrayed in that way? What would, would it be like? I wish I could do, like, a study group, where I, like refuse to let people read the Black Swordsman and try to compare their experience going Can I, through. I'm going to speculate on that because I think 
if you actually read when you read go through golden age i felt that there's so much foreshadowing that you would actually walk away going well they uh you know they they made that a bit obvious that was going to happen um and it might even undercut it because when it's if you read back swordsman they tell you and you go oh i meant to know whereas if you just read golden mm-hmm. age you might be like was that meant to be a twist really obviously coming but i think what you could potentially gain is you the reader genuinely like i say falling in love with griffiths and genuinely trusting the character people do man some people fucking love Griffith. I mean, I love him. Like, people... He's a fantastic like, villain. Yes! I mean, yes, there's one thing to be like, Griffith is a great villain. And then there is the Griffith did nothing wrong camp. Um, can I throw that out there? I, I have seen that. And I, I do... Mm-hmm. I do quite enjoy... It's not that Griffith did nothing wrong. But what I love about it is how it's set up that I can so easily see how Griffiths thinks Griffiths did nothing wrong. I think mean, that's what works yeah, so course. brilliantly. Um, it, nothing, when he does, you saw him, the traitor, but it's like, mm-hmm. I love it how I'm so sufficiently in his head that not only can I see why he did sure. it, I can see why it almost wasn't like a decision. He was just like, oh yes, the next logical step. I have to follow the course of my life. Duncan, did Griffith do anything wrong? Yes, but I'm not going to lie, he did... He was doing wrong long before the eclipse. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the Golden Age. Okay, then. So once you finish the Black Swordsman arc, we get a tender moment and where we finally see as Guts walks away from beating up um, and slaying the Slug Count monster. We see in it the last sort of panel, a single tear roll down Guts' face. Yeah, and specifically, it's not merely about defeating the Slug Lord. It's the fact that... He has, in meeting the Slug Lord's daughter, he has seen the monster in himself. The fact that he has come in and destroyed this girl's life in the same way that his life was destroyed long ago. And the only tenderness that Guts can give to this girl is to inspire her and fill her with the same kind of hatred for him that he has for Griffith. And that way, he gets her to keep living. When she feels like she wants to die now, he says... In his own fucked up way, I'm not going to let that happen. You have to stay alive. You have to keep struggling like me. And as he walks away, Guts cries. And Guts does not cry in the same way that so many of his equivalents would cry. You don't see him keeping a stoic expression as a single tear rolls down his cheek. Guts crumples up. He has like puckering lips. He looks vulnerable in a way that we have never seen before never and bam that's our trigger to go back and find out who is guts right the golden age arc firstly i love the naming of this because i like uh i once told this to another one of my friends after i read the animal you should you know read it that's the golden age arc he watched it and he was like oh that's so that's so like dark and like messed up and i'm like yeah well Apparently, that really is the highlight, and it's all downhill from the end of this arc. Oh, yeah. Not in terms of quality. The manga is, uh, is always good. But um, in terms of the quality of, like, the world, yeah, that was as good as it ever got. Griffith saved a country, and then everything got worse. Uh, the other thing I enjoyed when we do this flashback, if this flashback takes us to Guts' youth, and you initially mm. see some childhood traumas that Guts goes through. Oh, and... boy. What time is it, baby? It's 
Content warning o'clock. Yes. Yes. Um, and to address that, if someone had um, found they can enjoy Berserk due to some of the content that's within, uh, yeah, completely fair. Don't. No one deserves to feel uncomfortable reading a piece of literature. Berserk is notorious for um for its depictions of sexual violence. It is famously over the top. It has been wildly criticised for this, and I have said. It is um, the greatest work of fantasy of all time. I stand by that. I also think it is far from perfect. And I feel like this is something that dramatically reduces the quality of a series compared to what it really should be. And Miura himself regretted how much he lent on it uh, in later years. It, it, but yeah, to, to make a long story short, it makes Game of Thrones look positively chaste at times. I have to agree, and I think the the balance there has to be, and the issue why I don't think uh, Berserk does achieve that balance, is the inclusion of the content, paired with the how explicit is said content, mm. paired with the most important thing, which is the exploration and the actual message behind including the content. Mm. And sometimes I think Berserk really does dive into and explores the trauma and mm. how it affects the characters and gives the characters the proper agency and the proper respect. Other times, it yep. feels like, and this is when I really, I genuinely, I actively dislike it. Indeed. Um, I feel like it's, uh, Complete it's used as a quick card to make a villain villainous. Yeah. I need to make this, this guy look more evil. What can he do? It, exactly. And that sucks and I don't like it. But here is the continuum and here is almost, it's almost a paradox. Berserk is one of the most notorious and flagrant abusers of using sexual violence and rape for shock value, and you're very justified in disliking that. And yet, it is literally one of the best, if not maybe the best novel for all time for exploring sexual violence against men. It's the worst for women, but it's the best when it's talking about sexual violence of men. I'm, I'm, I mean... Those are very absolute statements. All I can say is, um, in all of my reading of fantasy literature, I've never found something that does explore sexual violence against men in quite the same way and to the yep. same extent. Um, I would just say, though, uh, you say it's the worst for women. I have to say there is some really bad stuff out there. That's not that's, a that's point true. I, I, I've already I said in this podcast that I refuse to read Prince of Thorns. And for similar points, it's it's not necessarily about inclusion and not exactly about being explicit, although I do think that's a key element to the scales. But it's just yeah. what it actually does for the story and how it's explored and what's driving it and what drove the author's included, inclusion of it in the narrative. Yeah. And often, if the answer to the why it's there is yeah. to show you the impact on someone else or mm-hmm. make another character, traditionally a man, look something or experience something yeah and the actual victims are not humanized yeah that's when it falls short and so there are instances in berserk in this arc Mm -hmm. where i'm like you've you've missed the mark and i i don't enjoy this section speaking to that um i think that uh basically after this exact point after this exact after the end of the golden age arc I don't think there's a single instance of sexual violence in Berserk which is justified. There are many during the Golden Age which are not. There are some which are, and I think better the story, um, and are, and that's sort of what the entire story hinges around. 
Um, but after that, it just, whilst he does peter off and he does it less and less, they are way less, you can't justify him in my point of view. Like they're just ridiculous to even include them. And Berserk fans know what I'm talking about when I talk about uh, Farness. But let's talk about um, Guts's childhood because that's you know where the um, that's where the Golden Age kicks off. And here's the thing: the strange part of the Golden Age is that it's supposed to be a flashback. It's supposed to tell you how did Guts get to where he is, and so therefore it should be a couple of chapters. And then it should skip forward to the point at which Guts fell from grace, as you might say. But instead, the, the Black Souls Mark takes place in issue one, or issue one of the um, of the deluxe editions, and it carries on through to five. So it's five. So the Golden Age, a flashback as to how we got to the Black Souls Mark, is four times as long as the inciting moment where we get to meet Guts. It is, for most people who've read Berserk, I think, most people who've experienced it, this is Berserk. The people who've seen the movies, the people who've seen the anime, this is it. This is what shocked me so much and why I'm so excited I'm at this point in reading Berserk. When you read the anime, particularly if you did skip that first episode based on people's recommendations, the Golden Age arc, it's a story. It almost, in a very, if you want to take a, if you wanted a very nihilistic ending, Mm-hmm. You could cut the golden age and be like, there you go. There's your, that's it. That's Berserk. Mm-hmm. And it kind of would work. Mm. Wouldn't work. And it has a beginning, middle and end. It has great characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has great character arcs. You know, this, this works independently. And it actually almost makes me confused. I'm mm-hmm. genuinely really confused that it only accounts for like, a quarter, if not slightly less, of all Berserk published. Sure. And I'm like, what? What happens next? So, Dunk, imagine if, say, you're reading Elric and you're reading, um, not even like all of the Weird of a White Wolf. You're only reading the Dreaming City or the Sleeping City or whatever it's called. And then, as Guts, uh, as Elric is on his boat, getting mad at his sword. Uh, then you went back and you read Elric of Melnibane, and then you read um, The Fortress of the Pearl, and then you read Sailing of the Sea of Fate, and then finally were able to continue on the rest of Weird and the White Wolf. That is what Berserk is like. I think that's a really apt uh, comparison. The one place in which that um in that disc that falls down is that there's no section of this of uh, the berserk series which is like fortress the pearl because almost all of it is good wow have you finished that novel yet nope i actually just gave up and i read um both weird of a white wolf and um sailors on the sea of fate sailor on the sea of fate good call yeah i hope you enjoyed them a lot more i enjoyed them a lot more although i do hear that uh berserk has its own section on a boat like said, <laughs> it sure does, buddy. It sure does. Can I ask a question about the future of Berserk? Is yeah. the Golden Age, for someone who reads the Golden Age and loves the Golden Age, indeed, and for people who watch the anime or watch the movie trilogy and loved it, is this representative of Berserk as a whole in terms of flavour, plotting, style? Is this what Berserk's like, or is this actually quite unique um... within its own universe? 
in terms of the fact that it's a series with these characters and has really good characterization, this is fairly representative. In terms of the sort of, um, the style of fantasy, no, because it goes from being a low fantasy setting to a, not high fantasy, but definitely the magical elements are very, very present in the rest of the series. Like, I'm not going to get into it too much, but at some point, Gut starts hanging out with wizards. Uh, uh, when you say wizards, am I thinking like pointy, pointy hats? Hat Gandalf. Okay. Yeah, pointy hats. Okay. I honestly would not... If you tried to insert a wizard with a pointy hat into the Golden Age, I don't think it would... That, I think I would have issue. You think you would dispute it? You'd be like, no, no, no. Get out of here. What are you doing? Shoot. Shoot. Get out of here, Gandalf. No, um, the, the, the Golden Age is so grounded. It's literally like there are very few magical elements for most of it. There is the inclusion of Nosferatu Zod, a big demon, which is the only confirmation that any of the characters have that magic is real. There, the Skull Knight, he's around, and he's strange, and no one understands him. And until the Eclipse, that's basically it. I think I need to tell you, if you watch the 97 anime, do you want to know what they cut out? Uh, the Skull Knight's not in, I know that. The Skull Knight, Puck, and every other creepy demon apart from Nosferatu Zod until the Who's eclipse. in one scene, until the Who's in? He's literally in... I think he's in one episode, and then that is it. So that's why I think a lot of people do get a bit like, especially on the anime, or skip that first mm-hmm. one. Because it's just so tonally different. You're like, but then there are no monsters again. And then you get to the eclipse, and you're like, where's all this fantasy? There was no magic other than mm-hmm. Zod. So the Black Swords mark was about introducing Guts at the midpoint of his journey. And the Golden Age is about how he begins. But that's not really what it's about. Golden Age is about setting up Guts to have a good life in order to destroy it. We begin Guts' story as in a pretty bad place. Guts is brought up. um, He's born from a corpse. His mother is a dead woman hanging from a tree after a massacre. And he falls from her rotting uterus. He's picked up by a band of mercenaries. They're like, that's a dead baby. Don't touch that. And then the baby starts to cry. And they go, oh my god, what the fuck? And then they raise him as one of their own, which means they abuse him. He's raised by a man called Gambino, who trains Guts to use a sword from the age of, I think, four years old? Which is also the same age Gohan was when Goku started teaching to fight, so hey-ho. But uh, Guts immediately starts accumulating scars, battlefield experience... No, stop, stop, stop. Do not compare Gohan's childhood to Guts' childhood. I mean, I'll say Guts never had to fight a dinosaur. Exactly. Gohan had it far, far harsh. <laughs> um, one difference is that Gohan unfortunately saw his father die in front of him. Uh, Guts has to kill his dad. Uh, a very upsetting scene happens, which is that Guts not only um, has never has a chance to accumulate innocence, it is stolen from him. When Gambino sells him to, well, and it's one of the most, it's this traumatizing moment from which Guts, um, I think, is it fair to say literally never recovers from? Um, 
it's an interesting point, and this is something that I had while reading. We know in the Black Swordsman, Guts has intimacy issues. Yeah. Uh, and you read this first section and you think, ah, oh, the incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then later on in the Golden Age arc, you go, oh, another incident. The incident. Oh, another is... incident. It's what I, I would say that cumulative, cumulatively. Compounding. Uh, compounding. Compounding. Trauma. The sum of uh, all these traumas are still there. And, he, and as of the end of the Golden Age arc, he has not recovered mm. um, at all. Which is sad because there's almost a moment where you think he's beginning on that road to recovery. Exactly, exactly. There, is, there are points in the ashed. story, first of all, where Guts, once he has killed his father in self-defense, he's gone on the lamb and he's, he's become a lone wolf. He literally has to fight a bunch of wolves and then they leave him alone. He couldn't be more lone wolf if you tried. And he has this moment where he realizes there's only one thing I can ever count upon in this world. Duncan, what's the riddle of steel? Only trust steel. Men are there weak. There we go. Great. He learns he can only trust his sword. It's the only thing that will ever protect him. And this is this moment, this striking moment, which maybe maybe has washed over you, Duncan, and you've forgotten about in the months since you've read it. But when Guts is a child and he's scared, he reaches out and he curls around a sword in the night like a teddy bear. It's his only source of comfort and his only source of feeling safe. The fact that if people hurt him, he can kill them. Well, I'm not going to lie. I, I did sort of drift by that trauma. Um, mm-hmm. I I think, yeah, when I read that, obviously all I kind of I kind of picked up, which I guess is the same message as the fact that he never does feel safe. Mm-hmm. Like there's no environment that he feels secure. Does he always has to have his weapon there on hand? So, so one of the philosophical points of the series, and I haven't unpacked the um the true meaning of berserk yet, and I will in time. I will talk about. I'll ask you eventually, Duncan, what you think berserk is really about. But I will say that part of what the sword represents in this is really interesting. That in every other series, swords are such an obvious phallic symbol. They have these big, strong rods, which men use to show how tough and cool they are. And it's really bizarre that Berserk, the one that began the whole big fuck-off sword tradition, isn't about that. The sword doesn't represent Guts' virility. It represents how frail he is. The fact that he needs to carry this big sword shows how vulnerable he is, and how he needs to keep everyone at a distance. I think a really good kind of point on this is the fact that at no point does the sword, or any of his swords, his ultimate, his black sword, or any of the swords he has during the Gone Age, they're never given character, as far as I've experienced reading Berserk. N- never is the sword made out to be Excalibur. Never is it his... I can't believe I should have forgotten the name of the sword from Elric. I am a terrible person. What's the name of Elric's sword? Don't tell me. The Black Sword, what is it called? Stormbringer. Well done. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. Never is it Stormbringer. I never feel like Guts like, has a relationship with the sword, like my trusty sword, my friend on the battlefield. It's, it, it's a bit, it's interesting, because he doesn't have a relationship to a sword. Like I said, he goes through them like coffee filters. He has this deep connection to the sword, the sort of, the idea of the sword. And there's this bizarre panel and it actually took me a long time like maybe my fourth read for a berserk before i really got it but there's this moment where guts 
sits atop a hill and he holds his hand out before him and we see from his perspective a, a sword growing out of a palm of his hand. And what this means is that Guts has no identity. You know, Guts was brought up to be a soldier. Guts was never given the chance to be anything else. In order to get by in this cruel world, he's gone down this path of violence, and he's become an incredible swordsman. And it's the only thing he knows how to do. And so, when he wants to figure out, who am I? What am I here to do? Is my life just about violence? Am I just a servitor, nothing but an attack dog like Casca says I am? He ties up his very identity with swordsmanship and with the sword. The sword has become a part of his arm, and it's part of why he leaves the band of a hawk. Duncan, we're 72 minutes into this podcast, and I just said the word band of a hawk for the first time. That's insane. Let's talk about the band of a hawk. The band of the hawk is the mercenary company that Guts joins and serves with for the, pretty much the entirety of the Golden Age arc. In this band, there are, I would say, there are, there, there are many characters, but I will be honest, there's sort of three of great significance. One being Guts mm. himself, one being Casca, mm-hmm. his uh, principal love interest, and sort of the second in command of the band. What are you talking about, Duncan? They hate each other. As all lovers do initially in literature. Yeah. Oh, I'm not, no, it's fine. He's actually done well. And I like it because I think... It is done well. It's one of the best love triangles in uh, in fantasy. Exactly. Because it's done well because you can show... It's shown that this initial hatred isn't from that, like, I don't want to acknowledge my feelings towards you. It's because it's this confusion between both their feelings mm-hmm. and their desire to basically get praise from the charismatic mm. leader of the Band of the Hawk. The man exactly. introduced to us as Griffith. Shall we talk about... Pippin? No, I'm joking. Uh, shall we... <laughs> that was a good one, Duncan. I genuinely got so confused. Um, I no, think I want to um... give a quick moment, though, to the other members and say that I think... I don't want to go into so much detail. Well, they all do bring something. Uh, mm. I, I enjoy, I enjoy, you know, Caucus particularly, I think, brings something. And Judeo being the only one whose name I don't know how to pronounce. I actually don't know either. I'm assuming it's judo. Judo. That would be right. I'm going to say judo. Um, And then Rickart, who I feel must get much more characterization later on. Uh, The rest... There's a guy called Gaston, Gaston, who I think is literally just the stand-in for we need to give a voice to the other, like, 100 members. Uh, Gaston, say a thing. (laughs) I think that's completely true. He is the... um... He is the platonic ideal of a member of the Band of the Hawks. He also looks far too much, much like Caucus. Uh, I, he does, he does. The first time I read through, I kept confusing them. I didn't realise they were separate characters for a while. If I thought that Caston is always like, Guts, you're, you're so amazing. And then Caucus is just like, fuck you. You fucking suck, you son of a bitch. I hope you die. Uh, no, let's, so let's focus then. I think we should move over to Casca um, next and then f- finish on Griffith. I think we should very briefly say what the Golden Age is actually about. Oh, have we not said that? Well then, (laughs) allow me to explain. Uh, The Golden Age is about Guts recovering from trauma, learning to like people, learning to trust Mm. in Cusca, and particularly learn to have trust for Griffith, learning to question Mm -hmm. his role in the endless wars that plague the land, 
learning to finally like step forward and take a bit of command of his own destiny to, to finally let down yep. his guards and reach out to other people and then to have mm-hmm. all of that smashed up against the wall in blood and gore and his entire life destroyed and sent down a dark hole to misery there you go yeah that's it from a more literal perspective the golden age is about griffith gaining power it's mostly about the wars between midland and shooter and um in time Griffith has ascended so far that he's become a count, that he's beginning to begin a courtship with the princess of the country. Everything is looking great. And then Guts ruins it for Griffith, and then Griffith ruins it for everybody, and the world's made it to a worse place. I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. And a lot of the story beats of the Golden Age art is really... We're kind of going battle to battle... And we're going uh-huh. maybe kind of court intrigue event to court intrigue event. Indeed. Um, and while these events each other. sort of explain Griffiths' rise through society, uh-huh. it works so well because each one drives the character development forward for all of our kind of yep. principal characters. We get, I wouldn't say character development necessarily for Griffiths, but we get to see more of his existing character. And we get to see uh-huh. Guts and Cusker develop as each sort of event plays out. There's a lot of... I would say there's a lot of, but there is definitely an element of um, villain, villain of the week. You know, they go into a battle and it's like, oh, the legendary black whale rhino knight, sir. Oh no, it's the big strong man that Guts has to fight. What's he going to do? And it's like, what does Guts do? Well, he, uh, he hit him so hard that he cut through the other man's sword and sliced him and his horse in half. And you're like, cool. That was yeah. nice. This guy's armor is three inches thick, Guts. What are you going to do? Kronk. Why did I say cronk? What the fuck? That's like, that's the armor, like, clashing in on itself. He was cutting, like, he wasn't, like, cutting through the armor. He was actually, like, just folding it in, like, he hit it with a hammer. Mm, mm, it's true. Fucking rules. Um, you were going to talk about Casca. I am going to talk about Casca. Casca is fantastic. Great. Casca is, um, an excellent kind of element to this, I will say love triangle. Because sure. what we get through Cusker is the eyes of someone who is so sort of infatuated and it's not necessarily in love, but it's, it's admiration and loyalty. Infatuation is, I would say, is a really the right um, word because she's not merely, not, she doesn't merely admire Griffith, although that is the source of all her feelings. Um, infatuate is the right word because uh, Cusco doesn't see Griffith for who he is, really. No, she ide- idealizes who Griffith is, and the more sh- and she knows more about him than anyone else in the band of the Hawk, um, potentially even more than Guts. But Griffith is so keeps his cards close to his chest so much so that she never really understands the real him. He only lets Guts get close, and she despises Guts for this. Why do you love Guts more than me? He just got here. And I really enjoy the the explanation because what we get, firstly, we get the explanation from Griffiths where you kind of see why Mm -hmm. he likes Guts more than her. Um, Big sword. Well, I, I don't actually think it is maybe I'm reading it differently. I was interpreting big sword, it. loyal attack dog. 
I always thought though it's oh no maybe I maybe I'm giving Griffiths too much credit. I always thought there was an element where Griffiths could see Guts as slightly more of an equal, and thus could like him more, whereas he could never see Cusker yes. as anything more than his second. Absolutely. And the reason why we're using this is that Guts and Cusker both overhear a conversation which Griffith has with Princess Charlotte, in which he says that, you know, like, I have this dream which I must follow to the end of my days, and I could never consider anyone who doesn't have a dream my equal. And Cusker is not affected by this, because she has a dream, and that dream is to follow Griffith. And Guts realizes he doesn't have a dream. He doesn't have ambition. He doesn't have anything he wants to do with his life. And it destroys him to realize that Griffith will never consider him his equal. That Griffith will never really care about him. And so he has to find his own dream and his own path, which leads him leaving the band at a hawk. Because if he can't be Griffith's equal while serving him, then he has to leave. Oh, see, I don't want to get away from Cusker, but I really enjoy this moment because I think it's not only about guts, like realizing that Griffiths won't see him as an equal. I think it's also mm-hmm. like everyone else can't see Guts as an equal. Um, it's it's not even that. It's I would say it's more that Guts realises that his life is meaningless. I'm thinking that one through. You're right, it has no meaning other than he's only all he ever does is forward Griffiths' goals. And that's exactly what Cusker's always said to him. She always said, you're nothing but a dog. You're just, you just do as you're told and you kill people and, you br- and you're not even good at that because you keep breaking the rules and not following orders. Um, I don't even know if to say that. I think that's true though. I think that's the, the point of this arc is Guts having that realisation that he needs to seek out more. And that's exactly. how it culminates in him going, right, I've got to strike out on my own. And it all goes well because Griffith, he's really good at not getting what he wants. You know, he just takes it in his stride. Well, that's the thing. Should we talk about Griffith? Let's talk about Griffith. Um, because actually, we need to talk about Griffith. We need to talk about Griffith. And I think, actually, I said I oh, would talk about Cusker and then talk about Griffith. But really, all these three characters' character development is so intertwined over this arc that you kind of flow between the two. So Griffith is... I don't even know fully. He is the most charismatic of all charismatic leaders. He is the white knight mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. land and he is a total and utter a cold-hearted psychopath down to his core yes and what i love so much about him is that he is so enjoyable because he's not like a ramsey bolton or a york from prince of thorns character where you could sort of enjoy the fact that they're enjoying being evil what i like about him is that he clearly he is such a good manipulator that he he acts mm-hmm. he acts human he is human he acts like he cares when he needs to act like he cares to then mm-hmm. get people to do what he wants so perfectly well but what i love about the the work of the author in this is that i don't know i don't even know how he's doing it but somehow the author is tipping his hat to the audience when it's fake yeah i mean there are these moments when guts oh, sorry there are these moments when griffith just looks and he has the penetrating eyes of a hawk. And you go, oh, right, there's nothing inside you. You're nothing but a hollow pit of ambition and hatred and fear. And that's covered by the artwork alone, which is imp- so impressive. Yeah, I really like this a nice moment when Guts and Cusker get separated from the band of the hawk. 
And when they come back, the guys are like, Griffiths has just cancelled a big meeting with all the lords because he wanted to come and check on you right now. And they're like, oh, it's because Griffiths mm-hmm. cares. But it's such a good thing because actually it's like, no, it's because you're more important to his grand plan than that meeting. He's like, mm-hmm. shit, if I lose my two yep. best soldiers, I'm not going to get to the top seat. Exactly. There's one other thing to that, though. And there is one feeling which Griffith does seem to have, which is that he loves Guts. He's in love with Guts. Yeah, I would I would say that. I think, how do I, I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I don't know whether or not he sees in Guts a bit of himself or he loves Guts mm-hmm. because he sees, he's almost like, Guts is the ideal, it's the ideal of like the mercenary in like, he has the big sword. He's very good at what he does. I mean, it's hard to say where it comes from because we're not actually permitted that much of a look inside Griffith's head and everything, he's a facade. Like, there's, we never see his true self really up until the eclipse, one could argue. But maybe he just really likes Guts because he's his type, you know? He's big, he's strong, he's handsome. Do you ever though see it, um, one way I, I also looked at it is that he does love Guts, but he loves him the same way that like... Oh, maybe this is going to go wrong. But, like, I love my dog. You know? Well, there's something to be said for that. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. Right before the eclipse, when Griffith has been fucked up by torture and can't move his arms and is reflecting on his future, he thinks about his idealised new pastoral life. And and in that future, he imagines himself um, married to Casca. And their son is called Guts. They've named him Guts in honor of Guts. And where does Pippin fit into this? Why, he's their dog. <laughs> he conceptualizes Pippin, one of his most royal and best soldiers, as his dog. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. Um, I never really kind of placed that. Uh, he's a real jerk, you know? He is. So, would you say then... His love of Guts is a little bit more lovely because I suddenly got the vibe, uh, particularly mm. when Guts leaves, and there's this whole, there's a bit when he rejoins it, and the Black Hawk, Black Hawk, Band of the Hawk Raiders. The Black Hawk is a thing from later in Berserk. Uh, Band of the Hawk Raiders is like a, the, a subgroup which Guts leads. Indeed. And I love this bit when he comes back. They're the Vanguard, and they're like, we would have followed you. And in some respects, I almost feel like in a different universe. There's this mm-hmm. one where Guts saddles up and the raiders all ride out with him and he goes to a different kingdom that had a different war and he could mm-hmm. Guts could basically do Griffiths again. If Guts wanted what Griffiths wants, he could go off. Well, uh, maybe. He doesn't quite have the smarts. He doesn't need the smarts, mate. Have you seen his sword? <laughs> okay, what's the plan of the attack? Uh, we're going to charge straight at them. Will that work? And he just gets his sword out. He's like, <laughs> Fuck yes! Yeah. So, um, imagine that. Guts is the leader of a band of adventurers. I wonder what that would look like. I really do. It's a shame you don't get it. We've said that uh, we've established the relationship between Guts, Griffith, and Casca. And it really is the crux of the entire Golden Age. Forget Tudor. Forget the battles. Forget forget Judo. The main crux of the Golden Age is about the three of them and how they feel about each other. Guts and Casca start the story at each other's throats. They both love Griffith. Guts has probably more complicated feelings about how he feels about Griffith. I'm pretty sure he's so emotionally detached from 
himself at that point, he probably can't really conceptualize any greater feelings towards Griffith, aside from the fact he's his best friend, which is probably how he feels about him. Griffith is in love with Guts, Cusker is in love with Griffith, um, <laughs> Guts is a, a mess of feelings, um, and then, at the scene you alluded to, Guts and Cusker are separated from the band of the Hawk, and it happens because um, it felt very strangely, it happens because Casca is having a really bad period day in the middle of a battle, um, and Guts manages to, like, try and save her from falling off a cliff, and they finally have to, like, talk to each other, because no one else is around, and they're stuck together. Uh, and I'm gonna bring this up now, and I feel in almost embarrassed that I didn't mention it before, but something that's really poignant about this scene is the fact that Guts and Casca, um, due, due to the circumstances of Christine getting washed away in a river, have to strip off their clothes. And what's really profound about this is that not only are they disrobed of their clothing, they're also, uh, they also toss away their armor. You know, almost all the scenes they're in together, they're armored up, they're ready for battle. And this is a moment when they have to huddle up together in the cold for warmth. And when they have this conversation, for the most part, they're stripped fully bare. And even afterwards, at the Campfire of Dreams, it's a scene where Guts is shirtless. And it's not just to show off his traps. It's because Miura has taken this moment to say, and now they, are, they let down their defenses around each other. And it's really, really good. Like, it's just scenes of characters talking and a little bit of flashback and the change it brings in the two of them is fantastic. And it makes complete sense after this when they, like, expose themselves to each other. And when they start to understand each other some more. And it's followed up by the Campfire of Dreams chapter, where Guts talks about how, you know, everyone has a dream and I have to find my own. That Casca realizes, oh, you're not a dog. You're not just a weapon that Griffith uses. You're a person, and actually, you're a really beautiful person. And then... So can I just add on to that? It's I also took, like, that scene. So this is the scene where the two characters stand out over the campfire of, like, the mercenary and the army mm -hmm. encampment that they're part of. And it's this sort of realisation mm -hmm. that actually every one of those campfires has people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And they need to... So this, I found the realisation was like, it's not about... Griffith is the only character, at least in these people's minds, that mm -hmm. matter. You know, the band of a hawk. It's a unit. It's a it's a family. And they all have dreams, and they all have their own individual stories, even if we don't get to hear them. Mm -hmm. And it sort of also, I think, then leads into the the horror of the war that every day people with their dreams are dying, and mm -hmm. it almost goes un unnoted. But yeah, back to what you were saying. And back to what I'm saying is that that's the moment they start to fall in love with one another, where Casca has this fantastic moment of conflict later down the line where she realizes, I don't want Guts to go. When Guts decides he's going to go, she wants Griffith to defeat Guts in their last duel so that Guts won't leave. And it's really emotionally complicated to her because her entire life and her dream is to serve, to serve Griffith. That's her entire reason to exist. 
And when Guts defeats Griffith in the most amazing way possible, where it's over in this single blow, and Guts shatters Griffith's sword, and yet still manages to, like, hold himself back, and, like, stop his sword at the last second to not cut Griffith clean in two, and Griffith realizes that he has focused so much on his dream, and has focused so much on using Guts as his instrument, that Guts has surpassed him. That Guts, he can't defeat Guts like he used to. And now, Griffith is alone. The one person he did consider an equal has abandoned him. And he doesn't cope with it well. Right, before we get into how he doesn't cope, I think it's just quickly good to establish. So this is a scene where Griffith kind of says, uh, in their first meeting, uh, Griffith's like, join my band. And Guts is like, fight me. And Fuck no. Griffiths does, and Griffiths wins, and he and Griffiths spares Guts' life in the duel and says, right, your life now belongs to me. So this scene comes about because yep. Griffiths like, well, if you want to leave, you need to duel me again and win. Mm-hmm. And what's really powerful here is Griffiths, we get Griffiths, first time we're really in Griffiths' head, and he thinks through his moves in this mm-hmm. fight, and he's like, okay, I'm going to do this, and then that. And he's like, oh, there's a risk there. If something went wrong, I could accidentally kill Guts. But he's like, okay, I'm going to have to mm-hmm. risk it because I can't let this guy go. So that's a really nice moment that Griffiths is like, I'm going to risk killing him over him leaving. Yep. And then that's why it's so much yep. more powerful that Guts just through wins, wins easily. easily. And it's not just through brute force. It's also a sign of such control because Guts never risked yep. killing Griffith, but could still win. Exactly. He's in control. Like he cuts Griffith's shoulder, I think, but he's never in any danger. Guts is not fretful and he just walks away without a word. And- and it's dope. It's also kind of what I do to earlier, the sense that actually, at least at this point in the story, Guts, everyone is so focused on how amazing Griffith is and how Griffith's the one that brought the band mm-hmm. together. We couldn't have done this without Griffiths. Oh, God, the Holy Lord Griffiths, blah, 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 blah. He's literally won the war. And it's like, it's this sort of, I'm like, yeah, but without the band of the Hawk, Griffith isn't actually that amazing he's not or at least as a pure no. swordsman you know he's not guts equal he couldn't mm-hmm. have done this without them and like you all need to give yourself mm-hmm. more respect and credit for getting him this far yep. let's talk about let's briefly go over how things unfold after this moment because uh griffith and this is actually i think really like strong from like a psychological perspective because griffith has been rejected and rejected for the first time maybe ever in a really serious way he's actually lost someone he goes he sneaks into princess charlotte's room princess charlotte is the princess of the realm she's in love with him and um he he sneaks into her room and seduces her they sleep together and griffith his eyes are blank they are like grayed out he is not present in the moment he's not thinking about charlotte he's thinking about guts he is exerting his, like, psychological and, and sexual need and need for romance from Guts onto Charlotte. I just want to step in there. Uh, I personally interpret this more as a, sign, a scene of control. It was sort of a, I need to show that I am still in control, that I am still completely desired and irresistible. Mm, yeah, you know, that's, that's another, that is another side to it. I forgot, yes, that's true. The fact that he's going, he's getting easy love. He's going to someone who adores him, and he needs, um, 
not just gratification, he needs affirmation that he is loved. But the one word you shouldn't have used, Duncan, is control. Because Griffith is not in control here. He does this completely without thinking about it. And the moment he leaves in the morning, he is surrounded by guards. He's taken to the dungeons and commences in two years straight of non-stop torture. Yeah, it's rough. Um, he deserves it. Fuck Griffith. He does deserve it. And if he doesn't deserve it for what he's done up till now, he certainly deserves it for what he does later. For what comes later, you say, Duncan? What could that possibly mean? Yeah, man. Turns out I can talk about Berserk for a long time. Like, far and away our longest episode. Like, more than twice the length of one of our normal episodes. About pretty long books. So, consider this part one. The Black Swordsman arc up until Guts leaves the Band of a Hawk. In our next episode, in our first ever two-parter, We'll come back to Berserk, and we'll follow Guts' return to the Band of a Hawk up through to the Eclipse, and... Oh boy. That's gonna be a hard one. But, what do you expect for our book club? The silly voice, it doesn't, it doesn't do credit to the Eclipse. Man, that's gonna be hard to talk about. But if you're ready to talk about it, then you're free to take part. After all, this is a book club, and Duncan and I are not the only members. It's been such a delight to introduce Duncan to my favourite fantasy series of all time, and I want to hear about what you guys think of it. You know, Berserk has a lot of fans out there, so I want to hear what you have to say about these early arcs of Berserk. as it compared to the rest of the series? Are you are you very mad about our, dis uh, our descriptions of the other members of the Band of a Hawk, aside from the big three? I want to hear all about it. And you can reach out to us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com or by reaching out to us on Instagram at isthisjustfantasypodcast. I've been your host, Jordy Bailey, and I can't wait to see you when the sky turns red and the lakes fill with blood. When the vortex of fate reaches its singularity and one man defies destiny. I'll see you there at the eclipse, strugglers.